Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Uh, nobody is joining me today except maybe the thoughts in my head. Uh, it's kind of a rough week. Uh, Scotty has uh, an exam. Uh, that he has to uh, prepare for, um, which suited me because uh, the time we're typically recording this show, I'm likely still in city council because it's budget decision week, as you've probably been aware if you listen to this show. Uh, That has been kind of the focus of our interview segment the last couple of weeks. So no municipal stuff today um, because that's still (laughs) obviously ongoing. So we're going to focus our attention in other places and uh, give everyone a week off as uh, things are very, very busy here. But that's mean, that doesn't mean we don't still have a show. We definitely have a show, so hold on a sec. Open Source is a CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show. And you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians. This week, there will be two of them. We're splitting the show in half, two interviews each half. Coming up first uh, is Umberto Carlo, who is the executive director of the White Ribbon Campaign. Uh, You may be aware that this time next week will be December 7th, but a week from yesterday, or a week from, yeah, a week from yesterday... December the 6th, and that is the um, the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. Now, I have talked to uh, the fine folks at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis numerous times to mark this occasion, and it's not that they don't do good work. They obviously do good work. I'm wanted to look at this from a different perspective and it's been in sort of the back of my head for a while to feature the white ribbon campaign on the show they are doing the work of fighting gender-based violence but they are putting the onus i think where it belongs on the men in canada to do what they can to eliminate violence against women and gender-based violence across canada which is become the point of December 6th, which is technically the anniversary of what we call the Montreal Massacre, the murder of 14 young women at La Polytechnique in Montreal by a misogynist who believed that women uh, were not meant to be engineers. So he killed 14 of them. But that leaves a great big area in which to cover this topic of violence against women and gender-based violence. And as I said, the White Ribbon Campaign looks at this as, what can we men do to be better allies to women? And if you've been following their campaign this year, uh, what can we do to be better allies uh, with specific emphasis this year on trans women who are uniquely at stake for being the victims of gender-based violence and discrimination so obviously there's a lot of to talk about with umberto and uh, i'm gonna throw it to that interview with 
a caveat, a kind of trigger warning. Obviously, this is heavy, heavy stuff. So if you feel like, uh, you know, you kind of dealing with some heavy stuff in your own life, uh, I'll just say, you know, use your own discretion. And if, if you are sort of feeling that heavy, just click off the radio and come back around 530 and we'll have something else that uh, will en- hopefully enliven and enrich in you. In the meantime, here is Umberto uh, Carlo, who is the executive director of the White Ribbon Campaign. Okay, Umberto Carollo, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, first of all, would you mind just sort of giving the listeners an idea of uh, of what White Ribbon is and, and, and what, it, what you're all about, what it is you do? Sure. So White Ribbon is a Canadian charity. Started two years after the uh, Montreal massacre in 1989. Um, uh, our our focus is on engaging men and boys as as allies in ending all all forms of gender based violence and, and discrimination. So essentially, we call men and boys in to be part of the solution to end the violence that happened, uh, the kind of violence that happened in in 1989. Um, where 14 women were killed by young men who who hated women, but also mm. the violence that exists in our everyday lives, in our communities, in our workplaces, and in our schools. Uh, so White Ribbon is about encouraging men to play a positive role, to do our part in, in speaking out, never condoning, never committing, never remaining silent about uh, gender-based violence. And... You know, when you say um, about getting men and boys to sort of play their part, it kind of implies that, you know, both of us are are, are men uh, on this chat right now. But it kind of implies that we are not doing our part right now. And I, I guess we're, we're, when you're talking to groups, when you're promoting White Ribbon, like, and you're talking about where men are falling short, where are men falling short on this issue right now? Well, so men all for, are falling short, but also doing lots of great things. But, you know, where we need to continue to change is to make sure that we are part of the solution, that our behaviors, our attitudes, our beliefs are not contributing to the problem, because the vast majority of uh, gender-based violence, violence uh, used against uh, women, girls, two-spirited people, indigenous women and girls, people of diverse genders and backgrounds, vast majority of that violence is is committed by men so we have to change that we have to make sure that our our behaviors are healthy they're non-violent they're equitable and they treat people with respect so that has to change there's a gap there but also amongst those of us that don't want to use violence that don't believe in using violence we can't remain silent you know right. not using violence is not sufficient we have to speak out against it we have to think about how we can role model those positive attitudes and beliefs and how we can call on other men to do their part to create an end to this problem and how we can be allies and, and stand side by side with organizations and women and, and social justice groups who have been calling for change for the longest time and often without men supporting directly with men standing on the sidelines or you know at times resisting and fighting against it so we don't want mm. that to continue that is con- that continues to be a gap and, and and white ribbon exists so that 
we can all join efforts, you know, in ending this so that it's not just up to the women to end this violence, but it's up to all of us. That, that, that's such a key point, because, I mean, it, it occurred to me today as I was preparing this interview, uh, kind of a shame to say, but, you know, writing down the words gender based violence and maybe think, well, you know, who are the who are the victims of gender based violence and who are the perpetrators? And, you know, there are surely men who who are the victims of, of domestic abuse and uh, violence themselves. But, um, you know, when we're talking about these things, it, it, it does feel like um, men are missing in that conversation. When we talk about, like, how do we fix gender-based violence? We don't go to that next thing. It's like, how do we talk to men about not committing gender-based violence? Exactly. And, and, you know, we often look at the dichotomy of, of the perpetrator versus the person who experiences the violence, right? Right. But there's so many other roles. There's the bystander, there's the role mm. model, there's the dad who has an opportunity to impart, you know, good uh, beliefs and attitudes and role model gender equality at home and in the community. There's the colleague at work who who can stand up and, and address a sexist or misogynistic or homophobic joke, you know, that's used by one of their colleagues. There is the, um, you know, the, the, the friends who, uh, who can listen, you know, to their uh, woman friend as she talks about her experiences, past experiences of sexual violence and, and mm -hmm. harassment and listen with empathy and, and believe, right? So there's many, many roles, positive roles for men to play. And again, White Ribbon helps men do that part. It creates the resources, the education, the awareness, the campaigns, so that men can play a positive role in bringing this issue to an end. We can't continue to live with this, this violence and inequality because otherwise it will take us centuries to, to mm -hmm. end it. And uh, so the status quo is not, uh, not uh, uh, acceptable. Right. I, I want to kind of address that, like, how do we build, like, I, I guess, better male role models? And and, and this, this is an issue that sort of goes beyond um, tackling gender-based violence. I mean, you know, what's the one thing that big brothers and big sisters are always looking for? They're looking for big brothers. It's harder to find big brothers than it is to find big sisters. But then when, when we're looking at this, like, through the eyes of, like, sort of tackling misogyny and gender-based violence, and I'm sure you think about some of these names, too, people like Andrew Tate, who has set up this mm -hmm. entire cult, for lack of a better word, that is all about, like, mistreating women, like, in, like blatantly illegal ways, like sex trafficking. And, but there are a lot of young men out there who think, he's a pretty cool guy, I want to be like him. And I guess, how do you, well, there's two parts of this, how do you promote how do you find better male role models? And then how do you convince um, those kind of young people that, you know, it's better to have these role models than, than these frankly criminal people like Andrew Tate. Yeah. Well, the unfortunate thing about the Andrew Tate of this world is that their voices are loud. They're, they're everywhere. <laughs> and, 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 but, you know, we also have to consider that the majority of us don't believe in what Andrew Tate has to say, yet we remain silent. So, right. you know, just as young people people are looking up to Andrew Tate and saying he, he's cool, we're also coming a lot of, uh, across a lot of young people who say, my dad is so cool. A lot of adults who look back to their younger years and say, you know, I believe in equity today. I, I, I respect women and I... Uh, I'm lucky to live in a healthy relationship because my dad 
uh, my mom, uh, my, um, you know, uncles and my family members talked with me about this, you know, they presented with really good examples. So we need to make sure that instead of, you know, allowing Andrew Tate to overtake, you know, the message that we as role models, you know, as men committed to doing things differently, that our voices speak louder collectively and individually than the Andrew Tates of the world. And unfortunately, mm. for too long, we've perceived this issue to be like for women to deal with, it's women's right. issues and so forth. But what we what we try to do at White Ribbon is to help men understand that we need to play a role, that this is our issue too. For too long, we've been growing up, you know, with these with violence in our homes, with with discrimination in our communities, and and being on the sidelines of witnessing bullying and and disrespectful, homophobic, misogynistic, you know, behaviors in our schools. Like we got to think as as adults now, we have an opportunity to influence the the next generation and help raise the next generation of boys and young men mm. who who can grow up differently than what we did. Right, grow up with healthy relationships with healthy attitudes and beliefs and commitments around equity that's what we can do and and when we decide to do that individually and collectively our voices will raise our impact will raise above the andrew tates of the world for just if i can unpack that a bit you know it sounds like what you're saying is like as men we kind of have to be more proactive it's not just a matter of sort of like responding like when hate to keep mentioning his name but andrew tate when he's like in the news um you know to be responsive to this is to sort of deal with the problem after it's 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 already happened it's probably better as for for all of us as a gender as a society to like try and have these conversations before um it, it starts presenting itself i guess per, a pound of sure. prevention as it were Exactly. We got to do both, right? I think the first step, you know, the first step we always encourage people to think about is that accepting that we have a role to play. Like this mm. is our issue. We got to speak out on this issue. We got to do our part. That's our first step. And then we got to start having those conversations. We got to do our own work as well, because so many of us have those kinds of histories in our, our lives as well. Like we got to, we got to do our own accountability work and and make repairs and, and address those past harms and those attitudes, you know, perhaps we're not perfect, right? So mm. accepting that is, is part of the solution too. We're not perfect. We got to mm. do our own work and apologize when apologies are needed. And then we got to move forward in newer ways, in healthier, equitable ways. And we got to, um, you know, use our voices, use our influences, whether it be in the home as dads or family members, or in the workplace as supervisors or leaders or in the community. We got to use our influence to talk about the importance of e equality, equity, and nonviolence in our world, right? Especially right. Um, gender based violence in this case. And then we got to do our part from there. So speak out, you know, um, demonstrate commitment. Uh, uh, work towards change in the workplace and, um, you know, uh, look at the, the world of sports and promote healthier, more equitable, more inclusive sports. Uh, as athletes, mm. we can do our part to speak up, you know, use our visibility uh, like we did with the Toronto Maple Leafs through our Men of Quality campaign, you right. know, encourage athletes to uh, speak up on this issue because for too long, sport has been a site of 
right. uh, of violence, of, of sexual violence and harassment and so forth. We got to turn that around. And so many athletes are now saying, no, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm going to speak out against it. And in fact, I'm going to uh, you know, counter some of these policies that are still problematic. And I'm going to do my own speaking out and, and my own advocacy for, for change in sports so that it's more equitable. So right. it's all those things and so much more. And these are positive, sometimes pretty simple things we can do in our day-to-day lives and, and work. And, and it makes a great deal of, uh, of, uh, of a difference. And I think what we're getting at, too, is that for a lot of men, we kind of already know the difference between right and wrong on this issue. And that, that was the point of the campaign White Ribbon did last year. I can't the name escapes me off the top of my head, but it was about the the video that went with it was about uh, the father of a, a I newborn knew all daughter. Along. I knew all along. That's right. That, you know, yeah. looking at things through the lens of being a father of a daughter shouldn't. Like that, that shouldn't be sort of like an exclusive thing. We should all kind of look through that lens because the way you want your daughter to be treated is the way we should want all women to be treated. Yes, yes, exactly. But not, you know, we can't wait until that happens, right? right. Because that's 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 waiting too long. And what happens yeah. for men who don't have daughters, right? right? They should be equally concerned about their sons and they wanting their sons to be respectful and grow up in healthy relationships, not using violence, not using uh, control and domination, right? But even before that, even before we become parents as human beings, you know, we have a positive role to play in speaking out against this as we speak out against other forms of injustice or, or other areas that need change. Like mm-hmm. we, we have to, again, collectively make noise, noise that rises <laughs> above, you know, the noise that's made by some of these deeply problematic individuals like Andrew Tate. Right. Um, this feels like a good segue to talk about the campaign this year, uh, Short Life Stories, which is um, the, the focus is on trans women. Uh, pretty yes. timely, given some of the protests that we saw earlier this mm. fall. Um, I'm curious, is, is that what kind of has driven or, or kind of driven where the you're, you're taking the campaign this year is to, to open um, this discussion up to make sure that trans women are kind of exclusive or inclusively included um, in, in these conversations. Absolutely. So it's because of that. And it's also because of our understanding of, of statistics and the impact of gender-based violence. And we know mm. that trans women, indigenous women and girls, two-spirited people, LGBTQ community members, racialized um, women, we know that that because of those um, diverse intersecting forms of, of identity, um, they, they experience violence, gender-based violence and harassment and discrimination at higher levels. So mm. as an organization, we wanted to draw attention to the connections between the rise in hate against transgender communities and the everyday life experiences that they have around gender-based violence. And we wanted to uh, draw attention to the fact that it takes a very long time for a person to be able to be their authentic selves. Yeah. And who who out there wouldn't want to live authentically? We all want to, right? We want to be able to, to be free to be ourselves. Yeah. Yet transgender women, because of the discrimination and stigma, that exists in our society take forever to be able to come forward and live authentically. But when they make that choice, of course, there's a great deal of joy that comes out of that freedom to be themselves. And and on top of it, a great deal of risk of being ridiculed, of being discriminated against, of being harassed, of 
of experiencing violence and and often so so often you know those experiences lead to uh that joy uh that that freedom newfound freedom being cut short for so many because we know this year alone over 370 uh, transgender women lost their lives around the world due to right. violence so we gotta we gotta draw attention to this and say that you know transgender folks are 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 in our communities there there are family members there they are deserving of 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 uh of respectful treatment of 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 uh, deserving of the opportunity to live their free full authentic lives and nobody has the right to use violence or discrimination or harassment to curtail those freedoms nobody because we wouldn't want ourselves to um to have to hold back from who we really are uh, right. in order to live our lives i mean that's sort of bringing it back down to sort of like the, the individualistic perspective too you you want to everyone kind of wants the same thing which is to be their authentic selves as you were saying there's a part of this and, and i hate to say it's kind of like on vogue to, to sort of like attack trans people but i mean that's kind of what it seems like to certain communities they become trans people whether male female non-binary have sort of become popular punching bags to proverbially speaking to certain communities um it makes it difficult to sort of get that education piece because you know the the attack on schools for like making sure schools are inclusive um is kind of on the basis like well why are you teaching my kids that trans people exist and that i'm not sure where my question is going here but it just like there's a certain there's a real barrier to this that you know people don't want to attack tackle these topics because they feel like kids aren't ready but it feels like that's probably the best time to sort of give kids this information to teach them that you know there are genuine barriers and difficulties in the world that they have the power to overcome too. Absolutely. Well, you know, as parents, we want our kids to grow up being respectful, right? And being yeah. um, supportive of the full diversity that exists in our society. So, and, and also uh, we want kids who are having those questions, who are thinking about their own identity to feel supported and feel like they belong because for too long, trans kids, trans youth have been excluded and and have experienced those, um, you know, higher rates of, of discrimination and bullying and violence in schools. So right. it is the ethical thing for us to do to through our school system because it's that's where so many young people get get their education is for them to learn about respect and equality and inclusion and 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 treating everybody with without violence and 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 so forth so those those are such good you know principles and and right. and uh, ways of living that we should all support it's not about taking rights it's also about improving rights for everybody and improving right. knowledge and and uh, giving our kids a chance to grow up in healthier uh, uh inclusive uh communities perhaps differently than our own experiences where we didn't learn about these topics and and certainly, I don't know about you, but looking back at my own educational experiences, not only did I not hear about trans rights, I didn't hear about indigenous people, I didn't hear about racism. Yeah. There was so much missing that I that I you know I I like I I'm not happy about that. I don't want my kids to grow up without that kind of education. I want them to 
to learn to be full human beings, citizens with respect and appreciation for equality. There's nothing wrong with this, you know. Um, if if uh, if this leads to better experiences for young people uh, and adults who grow up with that kind of education, then we should we should get behind this and support it because it's good it's good for all of us. You know, you, you mentioned sort of growing up and, and not being aware of these issues. Hearing you talk made me think I was about 10 when December 6, 1989 happened. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember sort of, I was old enough to sort of understand news and understand like murder and, and you know, people who commit murder. And I remember being struck with the idea that a man would want to kill a bunch of women for going to school to be engineers. Yeah. Yeah. And that just seemed like such a foreign idea to me. Like, why would you want to kill mm -hmm. people, you know, women mm -hmm. for making themselves smarter, wanting careers in a certain field? I feel like that is both a benefit and also kind of a demerit that like by the time I was 10, I probably didn't have that sort of base understanding of what misogyny was. And I feel like that was something that that, that was an opportunity that maybe my wow. parents or maybe educators could have, you know, filled in a couple of, of blanks on to try and understand this thing. I mean, I turned out okay, I think, but I mean, it, it's possible that I wasn't the only kid who was in that situation, not understanding this and sort of like recognizing these educational opportunities um, and that, you know, kids are, if kids are old enough to understand that somebody's murdered, they're under, they're probably old enough to understand why. Yeah, we don't, we don't give kids enough credit for their ability to learn and to be compassionate and, and empathy like white ribbon is doing that work now in schools and with teachers unions and and with support from the ministry of education we know full well that when we do talk to kids in age appropriate ways about these issues they respond so well you know you can mm. you can see those early signs of empathy of compassion and and what parent doesn't want their kid to be mm. empathetic and compassionate about right. these these topics, right? We all want our kids to to grow up with those good, um, you know, qualities, being uh, emotional, literate, you know, knowing how to support someone who needs support, knowing how to listen, and so forth. Like kids have have great capacity to do that. We just Absolutely. we have to give them a chance and. Uh, and and uh, you know we gotta we gotta support uh, our educators as as they do that job and 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 we gotta do our part at home too and impart those good values right. you know in the best way that we can and that also means that we as parents we have to do our own work to learn about these topics because we didn't get a chance that perhaps our kids are getting today we should be envious of our kids for being. Yeah. the recipients of this education right because we yeah. didn't we didn't go through that as you so you know uh perfectly uh showed in your particular case and i was exactly the same yeah i mean it we're, we're kind of inundated like there's so much information at young people's fingertips and all of our fingertips generally speaking yeah. but yeah well, there is kind of a lack of direction um curation to maybe use another word because i mean the internet can take you to some pretty bad places as we all know um yeah we're kind of running out of time here so, so I, I do want to give a minute like for for your, the white ribbon campaign um i mean is 
you, you're looking for any particular help this this season to to get the word out to support your work and and what does that look like? Absolutely. So visit our website at whiteribbon.ca. Learn about this new campaign, shortlifestories.ca. Donate to our work. You know, we still need your support. Follow us on Instagram and social media. Um, help us amplify these messages. You know, invite White Ribbon to come to your kids' school. We'll do that work and invite us into your workplace or, or community group. We will come and provide a presentation and, and engage with your um, with your colleagues on these conversations. It takes all of us to create change and uh, we want to join efforts and we invite all your listeners to enjoy efforts towards us to uh, with us to change the world. Uh, that's perfect. Uh, I always have a bit of trepidation going into these conversations, hoping that we end on something hopeful uh, as opposed to something pessimistic, but I think we've arrived. Uh, so I'll just say, uh, Umberto uh, Carlo, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And once again, that was Umberto Carlo. And uh, you can certainly find out more about the White Ribbon Campaign. Just Google White Ribbon Campaign. It is super easy to find. And uh, just for a local note, uh, December, the six commemorations are happening on Wednesday. There's a 231 in the Thornborough building on the U of G campus. The Thornborough building, of course, is the engineering building on the U of G campus. Uh, and it's in the atrium there. Um, and then there's the uh, community commemoration at Marianne's Park at, I believe, 630. So uh, there are two opportunities for you to mark uh, the National Day of remembrance and action on violence against women. For now, we're going to take a quick break, mid-show as always, and when we come back, we're going to talk with Kitchener Center MP Mike Morris. You are listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Okay, so you might recognize that voice. It is Bri Webb, part of the legendary Guelph indie band, The Constantines. Uh, we, however, at CFRU just call him our trusted colleague, uh, the operations coordinator. And uh, that is from his new album, Run With Me, which debuted number one on CFRU. I don't know. I think there's something hinky going on here. Um, the new album, Run With Me, the track was called Outbound Only, No Return. Uh, one of the many great tracks that you'll find on that album. I believe there was an album release last weekend for uh, Run With Me. So congratulations to Bry. Uh, great work as always. 
Uh, also doing great work, I think I can say that nonpartisanly, uh, is Mike Morris, who is a member of the Green Party and the member of Parliament for Kitchener Center. Uh, we sometimes like to check in with Mike Morris as uh, one of the more unique personalities on Parliament Hill, being one of a, a couple of Green MPs, and uh, of course representing Kitchener Center just up the road, where there's a by-election happening. Uh, polls will close there in a couple of hours, if you're listening to us Thursday evening. Uh, some observers are curious to see if that will be another Green victory. Ashlyn Clancy, um, certainly there was a columnist in the Waterloo Region Record who was uh, definitely taking a third or fourth look at Ashland's campaign. Uh, obviously, we'll find that out in a couple of hours. If you're listening to the podcast version, you already know. But uh, no spoilers. Uh, we're going to focus on Mike Morris, who's uh, this interview. He's talking a lot about uh, working with the federal government on housing affordability, general affordability, also where Canada stands on the Hamas and Israel war which, as I'm recording this, is still in a state of, I guess, pause, uh, a temporary ceasefire that, that was extended on Monday uh, for another couple of days. So I, at this point, as I'm recording, I'm not sure if the war began again. I guess you'll, again, be able to tell me in the future, no spoilers. But uh, Mike Morris had some insights there as well. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to our, uh, the interview I did with Mike um, earlier this week. Okay, uh, Mike Morris, thank you so much for joining me today. Good to be back on again, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think I'll start with, as, as we're kind of recording this on Friday, we're getting uh, you know the news out about the, the hostages being released in Gaza. And, you know, there's, there's that situation uh, with the conflict. Whether or not by the time this goes to, back to air, it's a shooting war again. That seems to be 50-50. But I notice here, uh, certainly our local MP... Uh, Lloyd Longfield is a member of the governing party. He's been getting a lot of uh, hearing quite loudly from constituents about um, getting a ceasefire going. I know that you've been very vocal about um, getting a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, I'm curious what you're kind of hearing from your constituents too and and how you're um, sort of taking that, uh, I guess, advice and, and, and how that's guiding how you're petitioning things in parliament right now well i'm hearing from constituents very similar to the message i delivered in the house again yesterday that uh, yes we need to be unequivocal in demanding that hostages be released and the governing party has been really clear about that for the last six weeks now um, and we need to be demanding a ceasefire and canada's voice on the world stage matters we need to be using that voice, um, and it's a big part of why I've been calling for a ceasefire since October 8th. Uh, Greens put out a statement in support of a ceasefire on October 11th. Um, I was really encouraged uh, as a result of the work of the Parliamentary Friendship Group um, that uh, we had that open letter signed by 33 parliamentarians um, you know, back in mid-October, we've seen, seen the NDP put out a letter across their entire caucus. Uh, the Bloc caucus has joined in as well. It, uh, it's devastating. You're talking about Canada's leadership role. I know that there was some, I mean, you know, Netanyahu 
made statements following uh, something Prime Minister Trudeau said, basically just, you know, kind of mind your own business kind of thing. And uh, I know that a lot of conservative MPs kind of seize on that to say that, you know, look, look, Netanyahu obviously doesn't take Trudeau seriously. But I mean, from your point of view, um, uh, you know, seeing that back and forth, I mean, why, if it didn't touch a nerve, like, why does... Netanyahu sort of clap back. I mean, there, there, there must be some sort of, I guess, well, seriousness to sort of how he takes a statement from the Canadian Prime Minister if he takes the time to respond, right? Of course there is. <laughs> but what you're picking up on is the way that partisan politics gets in the way of meaningful diplomacy. Right. And it is true right now that one of the missions of the Conservative Party is to undermine the Prime Minister at every step and to make it seem as if everything is his fault. That's simply not the case. Of course, disagree with plenty of things the governing party is in the midst of doing, and I'm hoping we'll talk about housing and other crises we're facing. Uh, but just as it's true when it comes to the climate crisis, it's true when it comes to foreign affairs. As a G7 country, mm. we have significant influences as a middle power. And mm. the fact is that when we don't step in and use the influence we have, that actually reduces our influence mm. over time. When we think about things like a security council seat, those possibilities are undermined when we don't step into our role as a middle power and our role as a peacekeeper worldwide, which historically has been the case. And you know, here we're not seeing that to the extent that uh, myself and, and others would like to see. So notwithstanding political parties who want to take jabs at the prime, prime minister to score political points, the fact is that our voice does matter on the global stage. And if I didn't feel that way, I wouldn't be an MP for my community. And certainly I see it as my job to be kind of raising that call and trying to just turn the partisanship down, Adam. It's mm. disappointing that, that it's so quickly returns back to how do I score a political point for my party? Right. Uh, maybe some things are actually more important than your political party. And actually, we should be focused on the real issue, which is what I think Canadians send their MPs to Ottawa to do. Well, from your lips to Pierre's ears, but uh, I, I will take your cue and, and uh, move on to sort, sort of other matters. I know that the fall financial statement was released this week. Um, I know that there was probably a lot of disappointment all around in terms of, uh, you know, kind of getting some more concrete action, but just from your point of view and some of the things you're working on too, um, in terms of like trying to tie affordability to the climate crisis. Um, I mean, what was missing from the fall economic statement that you wanted to see? Well, any scale of solutions that meet the challenges we're facing just wasn't there. It was a huge disappointment. And that's not to say that there weren't positive measures included. You know, mm. I'll start by saying this idea of re removing GST from psychotherapy services, um, critically important, had been called for by uh, all parties. And it's now in the fall economic statement, which has, means that there's a very good chance that's going to move ahead uh, over the coming weeks. Um, reducing incentives for those who are providing uh, or taking homes off the market to do short-term rentals another important measure. So not that there was an empty document, but when it comes to the big, you know, things like ending legislated poverty for people with disabilities, absolutely nothing. And that's after a bill was passed, promises were made, no funding for the Canada Disability Benefit, no funding for the Disability Emergency Response Benefit. When it comes to the housing crisis that we're in, 
no new money allocated for the next two years. There's a, a new billion dollar fund. It's excellent. It doesn't start till 2025. Mm. When it comes to addressing the financialization of housing, the fact is that for our generation and those younger than us, we're not competing with regular people. We're competing with real estate investment trusts and pension funds. And my parents, when they bought their first home in the 70s, they were competing with other, other, other people. We've allowed the market to be turned into one where large corporate investors are preying on and making the most profit possible on the backs of low-income people in my community. And there's simple measures. I put forward over a year ago the simple idea to end the tax exemption for real estate investment trusts, use the money to build more affordable housing, had it studied by the PBO. It's a drop in the bucket. It's $300 million a year uh, over the course of five years or could be every single year. But either way, it's a bit of a litmus test for like, are you serious? And if you're not even going to remove the incentives, then why should we trust your series about addressing financialization? That wasn't in there. And of course, the measure you'd kind of mentioned, uh, the idea that we're in an affordability crisis, we are in a climate crisis, and in the midst of that, we have oil and gas companies that are gouging Canadians at the pumps. Mm. And for all the talk of the carbon tax going up, it went mm. up two cents a liter in 2022. It's true. Mm-hmm. But the profits of the oil and gas industry went up 18 cents a liter. And so any parliamentarian who's doing their job, if they care about affordability, should be looking at that. And so I thought another reasonable measure they could have included in the full economic statement that Greens have been pushing for, the NDP have joined us, the Bloc have joined us, even some Liberal MPs have joined us, is to say, Let's simply do what the federal government did with banks and life insurance companies in the midst of the pandemic. They introduced what they call the Canada Recovery Dividend. It's a windfall profit tax, 15% on profits over a billion. Mm -hmm. We got that costed out as well. It would generate $4.2 billion that could be annualized every single year and could be then used to help Canadians do the retrofits that we need to do on the heels of the greener homes uh, program running out and also not being replenished. Mm. Well, if you're looking of where can we, how could we possibly uh, recapitalize the greener homes grants? Well, look no further than a windfall profit tax. The Canada recovery dividend could have been applied to big oil. It could have been in the fall economic statement. And those are the kinds of like very reasonable, constructive measures that I was hoping would be in here to meet the moment. And my concern is what we're seeing more of from the governing party is almost like they're letting Poiliev govern from opposition. Mm. Like they're shifting to more austerity when, in my view, step out and be loudly and proudly progressive to differentiate yourselves right now and take up ideas like this that demonstrate that you're not going to just become more like them. And, and that's been, yeah, that was a disappointment. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure. I, I I was thinking sort of in the, in how you phrased it, but I, I did have down this idea that I wanted you to, to to mention. We're in the midst of a couple of different crises. We have the affordability crisis, which also includes the housing crisis. We also have the climate crisis. It seems like the one is outpacing the other. And I mean, I've seen this kind of on our local level here in Guelph, you know, there've been a couple of city councilors been kind of phrasing it as like, well, we can't really afford to go to 100 RE right now. Uh, maybe it's better to just go low emission instead of no emission. Um, I'm sort of having 2008 flashbacks because you had 
I'm sure you remember Stephen Dion came out with like essentially a, a massive climate action plan. And then there was the great recession and then no one wanted to talk about sort of like great substantial climate action anymore. It was all about what, like what is affordable. Uh, do you feel that we're kind of on a cusp of a similar, I guess, loss? Well, I think it's about choices. Mm. Uh, this government chose to buy and expand the trans mountain pipeline in 2018. They've chosen to throw $30 billion of taxpayer money at it. So don't tell me for a second that we can't afford the investments we need in high-speed rail, for example, in two-way all-day go, in the infrastructure that would provide Canadians the climate options that are more affordable, more convenient, ultimately more attractive. That's on all levels of government, particularly, I would say, the provincial and federal governments right now to be moving um, quickly on and to demonstrate to Canadians that, you know, again, if we didn't give $22 billion in subsidies to the oil and gas industry every year, let's talk about how we could fund 80% of deep energy retrofits for every Canadian in the country. Let's go get that work done. But I think it's a, it's a false dichotomy to say that climate action and affordability are on two different sides of the coin. And I think examples like a windfall profit tax, you know, they made the five biggest oil and gas companies alone in 2022 made 38 billion with a B in 2022. Mm. I can mm -hmm. tell you some people aren't having a hard time making ends meet right now. The reality is the pandemic only exacerbated the wealth inequality in this country. And the real shortage is political will. Right. We, we, need, we need elected leaders to be more honest with Canadians about what's truly driving affordability. You want to talk inflation? Let's talk inflation. 47 cents of every dollar of inflation, corporate profits. Mm. So let's deal with that as opposed to having some fictional conversation about how the carbon tax is right, uh, uh, raising the cost of living. Mm -hmm. Looking at this from a different way too, and a lot of my work is covering stuff from the local city hall level, but I, I also, I mean, because of that, I, I know that a lot of people are looking to Ottawa. I mean, they're looking to get to Queens Park too, but you're in Ottawa. So, you know, there's a desire... I don't know if I'd quite phrase it this way, but I th I think it, it's probably accurate to say there, there's there's a desire for people for like Ottawa to come in and kind of like solve the problem because there's so few levers that our municipalities can pull. And it's sort of municipalities are kind of feeling trapped by a, a lot of the crises that's happening. I guess what's from your point of view, sort of like what's stopping like getting that kind of substantive action? Like I understand that, you know, as, as you were saying that it looks like it feels like the government's kind of looking at more kind of like austerity budgets right now but i mean it, what more would you like to see the government do from your conversations from i'm i'm you know i'm sure you're in contact all the time with people at waterloo region council and kitchener city council you know what do they want you to do as an mp well let's just get real about where the federal government has played a leadership role in these challenges in the past so mm. let's talk housing. In the 1970s, 40% of all building starts had federal assistance attached. Today, 
our social housing stock is down to 3.5% at the bottom of the G7. Even if we doubled social housing, we'd still be middle of the pack in the G7. Mm. And so it's clear that over the course of my lifetime, and particularly in the last 30 years, federal and provincial governments have chosen to pull back from investments in the housing market in building particularly non-market, non-profit and social and co-op housing. And that's led to the crisis that we're now in. And so I really feel for municipalities that are doing more. I can speak to the region of Waterloo and the managed encampment that they just got going. Right. What I've said on, on the floor of the house many times is that when people are upset with local governments, they can line up outside council chambers and have their voice heard. The federal government just had a federal budget with no new money for housing in this fiscal year. Mm-hmm. People would be lined up outside council chambers for days if that were the case with local government. Right. So we've got to compel federal and provincial governments to get back to the table on climate. In Waterloo Region, our plan's called Transform WR. To get anywhere near to those targets, as I'm sure is the case for the city of Guelph with their ambitious targets also, we're going to need federal and provincial action. As it stands right now, the province is in the midst of, of putting more natural gas-fired electricity back on the grid, eroding our progress, removing coal. Mm-hmm. So this isn't about you or I turning the light bulbs off. You know, it's good to conserve, fine. <laughs> but that conservation only matters if that electricity is green to begin with. Right. And we're in the midst of clean electricity regulations that the federal government has just put out for consultation that allows the province of Ontario to add more natural gas back on the grid. Uh, P.S., the UN Secretary General calls actions like that, adding new fossil fuel infrastructure, his words, not mine. He calls that moral and economic madness Mm. at the extent of the crisis we're in right now. I would agree with him. Mm. And we have provincial governments in the province of Ontario who are doing the same thing. And so certainly I agree we need all three levels of government working together. We need less finger pointing at different levels of government. And so on 2A all day go, for example, I'm not just here to finger point at the provincial government. I've been calling out federally that the federal government invested 40% of project costs for 2A all day go to Kitchener. Wouldn't it be reasonable to get some accountability on a timeline? Don't we at least deserve that? That's what I can do as a federal MP to the federal minister of infrastructure to work with him to call for that accountability. And I certainly hope that MPPs are calling out for the same. Um, Certainly in our community, I'm seeing the city and the region step up. I'd like to see other levels of government uh, follow suit. Uh, I think one of your uh, colleagues from the Waterloo area um, tried to put that motion on the table and it failed, (laughs) if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, well, this is we've been going through this for so long. We got people waiting for overcrowded buses, and to me, that's sure. kind of doing your job as elected leaders. Is we got to be raising the call at the very least for two way all day go. But you know what? We're also the only country in the G seven that hasn't built high speed rail yet. Yeah, and yeah. then we wonder to ourselves why people have to buy a car, whatever the case. Well, all you do is build new lanes on the four hundred one, and you don't build any other infrastructure like high speed rail. Well, these are the choices they're going to lock us into emissions years and decades down the line. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could talk about transit all day, but I do want to touch on a couple of things before we wrap up. You you put electoral reform back on the map. Um, Yeah, we did. How's that going? 
It's one of the things I'm most proud of in my time as an MP so far, probably second to the work on the Canada Disability Benefit, because I'm sure it's true in Guelph too. When I talk with folks in my community, they haven't forgotten that promise from 2015. And maybe more importantly, there's this overarching frustration with how politics has gotten in the way of improving our democracy and making sure that every vote counts. And so, you know, to fast forward and be a bit brief about it, as a result of the work that, that several of us have done here, including a motion I brought forward about a year ago, and importantly, the work of Fair Vote Canada and their volunteers, and apathy is boring, and their volunteers meeting with MPs across the country, we will have a vote in this parliament and a debate on a citizens' assembly on electoral reform. It's the best way to take politics out of it. Let regular people be informed by experts and make recommendations back to our parliament on how to improve our democracy. And for everyone listening in, we've got a moment here. And so I'd encourage you, if you care about electoral reform, reach out to your MP and do three things in that email. Tell them why you personally care about this. Tell them you want them to support Motion 86 and ask for a meeting to talk with them about their support for it. We've got a chance to win this vote. And the only way we're going to do it is if enough Canadians across the country put enough political pressure on their MPs. We've got uh, NDP, Green and Bloc uh, parties are already in support. But it seems like every day I hear from another MP in the, in the governing party who is telling me they're going to vote in support as a result of constituents of theirs that have reached out and asked for a meeting to tell them that it matters to them. And when is the vote? Likely early February. Okay. The, uh, the parliamentary calendar, as you know, Adam, can shift pretty quickly, but we've had yeah. the first hour <laughs> of debate already. If folks are curious, they can go to open parliament and look up that first hour debate. Second hour debate, I'm told now, might be the first week or so, and the vote will be shortly after that. So, Okay. You know, folks, I've got a couple months still to organize, to reach out to friends and family. And I would say in particular, in both the liberal and the conservative parties, uh, if you're represented by a liberal or conservative MP, it's an opportunity to, to, to send that respectful email and uh, ask for a meeting to encourage their support. Uh, and I'm, on that point, we do have yeah. at least one conservative MP who's already joint seconded the motion. So okay, it's not cool. a pipe dream to think that we could have MPs from all parties, not nice. unanimous, sure. but we need 170 votes here on this. And we could get that through a mix of MPs from all parties. And that to me is pretty exciting. It's a stretch. It's a lot of, uh, I don't want to over um, oversell what's possible here. It's going to take a lot of work, but it's possible. I, I just I, I wanted to give people sort of an idea of what timeline they wanted to work uh, they have to work with. Uh, and on it, Adam, can I give a website too? Yes, a nonpartisan. Yes, please. So yes. it's it's nationalcitizensassembly.ca. Okay. Folks can go to that website and you can even find whether your MP already supports. And if your MP already supports, send them an email and say thanks. Yeah. So nationalcitizensassembly.ca gives you more background on the campaign. It's run by Fair Vote Canada. If you don't see your MP there. It's a great time to reach out. Yeah, I think it's a it's always a good idea to let your MP know that they have some cover with their constituents too. And folks, he's even wearing a green tie today. I just wanted to let <laughs> everyone know. Uh, Mike Morris, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's really appreciated. Great talking to you.
Thanks, Adam. I really believe conversations like these are important for our democracy, nuanced conversations where we get a chance to dive in a little bit. So thanks for asking me back on and hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again soon. So once again, that was Mike Morris, Kitchener Center MP. And uh, I wish I had more to say, but uh, the show has been all about me. So I'm going to wrap it up and uh, get out of here, as it were. Uh, That's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. Scotty will be back next week, so will I. Um, in the meantime, if you want to listen to this show again, you can download it on Monday from our website, opensourcesguelph.com, from the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean, or through one of your favorite podcast apps like Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. Facebook and Open Sources Newswire and Twitter at OS underscore Guelph is also where you can find us. I'll be back here on CFRU Wednesday at 3 p.m. for the news for the I will be back here on CFRU Wednesday at 3 p.m. for the movie review show that I co-host called End Credits. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson. And you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. Maybe the budget meeting is still happening. I don't know. Again, you'll have to tell me. Scotty Hertz can be found at Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Mastodon, if I remember correctly, and Blue Sky. Uh, you can find Scotty in all those places. You can also stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground, which is one of the many great programs that you will hear on this station, CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And as I said, we will all return back to our regularly scheduled regular program this time next Thursday at 5 p.m. And that's going to be another edition of Open Sources, and we will see you then.